I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Professor Stephen Schwartz, a man whose original doctor worked within psychology but has been a medical dean and the only person I've ever heard of who's been a vice-chancellor of three universities, Brunel in the United Kingdom, Murdoch in, in Western Australia and, of course, Macquarie University here in New South Wales, where I'm recording. Stephen, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. One of the issues we're discovering in our podcast series is that even to know what liberalism is takes some thought. When you hear the word liberalism, what do you think it is? When I hear the word liberalism, I think of the the three main Um, factors, at least for me. Um, And those are limited government, number one, equality under the law, autonomy. And personal autonomy, that liberalism is about individuals. It's not about social groups. The flourishing of everybody in the society. And you think this is the best system or you're you're, you're an advocate of this kind of liberalism? Um, Yes, I think I am an advocate of this um, kind of liberalism because... uh, if you boil it down to an everyday saying, what we're really talking about is the attitude of live and let live. And when you're a liberal, when you're a classical liberal, and remember there are different ways of using the term liberal, um, but when you're a classical liberal, you're really saying we want everyone to be able to live their lives according to their own needs and their own desires, provided that they don't interfere with other people living their lives according in the same way. So there's a kind of non-aggression pact that's necessary for uh, a liberal society to flourish. If you think about those as the main value of liberalism, then wouldn't everybody be in favor of giving everybody an opportunity to flourish? If that's so, why isn't everybody in favor of liberalism? It's it's under threat today, is it not? It it is, but that gets back to the other issue that I just briefly mentioned, and then what do you mean by liberalism? Um, Because to know what they're against, we have to kind of know what it is they're thinking about. Um, And it's not always clear. So in the USA, when they use the word liberal, they mean anyone sort of left of center is liberal. Uh, And that's a huge number of people with different views uh, on different attitudes. When we use the word liberalism here, we tend to think of more European terms of uh, the, the kind of social uh, organization that developed in response to monarchies and so on in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries where um, those were disappearing and they were being replaced with social arrangements that valued individuals rather than um, un- unelected leaders. Uh, what sort of liberalism are you talking about that's being rejected? I know there's a, a whole series of books that have been coming out over the last year or two about the decline of liberalism, the defeat of liberalism, I think is one. Um, and there are a whole number of them. But they're mainly talking about American style liberalism, which, as I said, is a very amorphous concept and seems to cover a lot of ground that we wouldn't think of here as having much to do with liberalism. So you don't think liberalism, as you understand it, is under threat or uh, challenged? I think it's won the argument, frankly. Um, I think where I see the threat coming from is what's often referred to as wide politics and narrow politics. Wide politics meaning 
the battle of ideas that goes on through centuries and goes on through different cultures and the battle of ideas of what's good in the world and how should the world be organized and what should be rewarded and what shouldn't be. I actually think liberalism won that um, argument decades ago. And I sort of agree with Fukuyama. It happened mm. and, it, and it won. But then there's narrow politics. And that's basically who gets elected and runs the country. And the connection that you'd hope to find between the battle of ideas and the arguments and then the outcomes for election, it doesn't seem to have happened. So we, liberalism may have actually won that battle of ideas, but it hasn't won the narrow politics. The Leviathan is still there and the Leviathan is still growing. That is, um, that it is hasn't, the power hasn't of worked. coercive. By Leviathan, the Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, Correct. you mean the power of coercive government. Exactly. It's, it's actually growing. And we've just seen a big example of it over the last few years in COVID. Um, where many things happened in our country, in Australia, that you never would have thought would ever happen. Let, let me push back then on this, push back on this. Liberalism is live and let live, but surely there are situations where that is dangerous because of threats like pandemics, like inequality, like violence, that mm. just simply trusting people to do their own thing and all shall be well is, is a naive view of the world. I, I'm, I'm proposing as a devil advocating. I agree. I agree. Um, being being a liberal and being in favour of individual autonomy doesn't mean there are no limits. I mean, so um, I still think there should be rules about how fast you speed on a, on a highway. And being a liberal doesn't mean that you can drive the wrong way down the one-way street because you happen to feel like it or because it's closer. So I, I do think there are clearly restraints that we have um, to live by in order to have a functioning world. Um, but it's a matter of the proportionality of those and what it is you're trying to achieve um, when you initiate those constraints on liberty and whether you, when you have a situation where um, governments, as we saw in COVID, were creating new rules which didn't apply to some people but applied to others. So um, sporting heroes were allowed to come to Western Australia, but... You weren't, <laughs> or, uh, or I wasn't, and I lived there. But surely that's 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 a, I mean, egregious failure of the policy being applied, but not that's attack right. on the policy itself. Um, but that's where, where that's really what I'm trying to say. So there appears to be a disconnect between liberalism writ large, liberalism in the wide area of politics, and liberalism in the narrow area of politics, where we're talking about who gets elected and what it is they do once they get there. And that, that we don't seem to have won that battle of ideas. And I'm wondering whether there's something in liberalism, it's something incomplete about liberalism itself that makes it vulnerable to this mm. creeping in. For example, you said um, the principle of no, do no harm. You're free to do what you want without harming others. Well, without keeping them from doing what they want to do. Yes. Now, the trouble is, in, I hear a lot of modern discourse using liberal language about harm. In fact, in many cases, harm has become the only public morality, other than authenticity. Mm. If, if I say this, I'm going to harm that group, harm that group. Harm has become a, uh, a growing anxiety and source of limitation of liberty. I cannot say those words, what I think about some groups in society, because of harm. Yes, um, that's right. And maybe harm is another word, like liberalism which has got many different meanings to different people. So often that harm you're referring to is hurt feelings or annoyance or things of that nature. 
which you and I wouldn't normally think of as harm. I mean, they don't normally mean that you're making someone bleed or breaking their arm. It means they're just annoyed at what you said. Uh, and that, that kind of thing happens all the time, but it doesn't mean it should constrain your speech. Do you think liberalism is blind to questions of inequality? If everyone does their own thing, some may get more power and, and some may have little power. Some may have great deals of wealth, others little bits of wealth. Partly perhaps because of what they do, partly because of the way things, the, the system is rigged. Uh, well, okay, but now I think you're broadening the subject a little bit um, because you're, you're saying let's go beyond just the basic ethos of liberalism and how it actually works in real life. And that's a whole other area, isn't it, a philosophical yes. investigation. Now you're looking at people who are looking at how do you set up a fair society so that those things don't happen. Um, I guess I'm asking the question, If we, you're saying liberalism has won the battle of ideas, but you notice it doesn't seem to have won the battle on the ground. No. And I'm wondering, perhaps one of the reasons is it's not, not sufficiently coherent as a doctrine. It, possibly, because it's not really an ideology, is it? It's more of a way of thinking um, rather than a very specific kind of ideology yes. and therefore is open to different interpretations. That, that, that's come through in the series, actually. Different implementations. Yes, oh, yes and I can see why, because I don't think it's an ideology. I think it is really more of a cast of thought. But there are people who have given a lot of thought to the question that you've asked. I mean, the, the most famous ones, the philosophers of politics, John Rawls, Robert Nozick, lots of them, looking at exactly that issue. I mean, it, it's one yes. thing to say that you're in favour of equality under the law, but how do you do it? Especially and in a world where people are not really equal, are they? Uh, they're, they're not equal in some things, but equal in other things. Yes, exactly. exactly. Right. Um, and so people have talked about that. And it's not the easiest thing in the world. And lots of people have always looked down. Liberalism has been criticising itself since it was invented. Um, yes. I, I saw a book called Self-Criticism of, Liberal, of Liberalism, actually, um, written in German. And it was, I cut the date here, I think it's 1843 it was. so Just before the uh, revolutions of 1848. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so already self-criticizing and always for that reason. How do you go from what sounds like a, a fair and reasonable proposition that most people will accept um, to implementation uh, yes. in a real society? And they, there are huge differences in what they come up with. Yes, I think I think it's one sense we are all liberals now. I speak of the West, not of other countries. Up, up here. Yeah, yeah, what up, about on the ground? Exactly. In our brains, perhaps. In our brains. In our hearts. Um, you mentioned that liberalism is, um, I, I wasn't using the word vibe, that would be the vibe of the thing, but it's a, an attitude of mind as well as a philosophy. I understand that. But it's not, a, it's not a, an ideology in your sense, no. right? Yeah. And therefore, it's competing often against much more well-defined and shaped ideologies. Correct. It's hard to be enthusiastic about a frame of mind, you, except when you're except when you're rebelling against oppressive regimes. That's when you see liberalism encouraging enthusiasm. It's like I'm thinking of Europe at the fall of communism. There was great joy, the overthrow. Of course. And uh, when when liberalism was came to its fruition in the 18th, sorry, 17th and 18th century, there was an overthrowing of, of, of oppressive regimes. Today, there's not a great deal of enthusiasm for it at least in the West, because maybe we're not facing explicit threats. When you say enthusiasm, I, I grew up in the USA. So I went to school in the USA and I grew up in the USA. And it would seem to me that it was imbued in all of us. 
even if it wasn't deliberate. So the stories that we were told, Jefferson, the people, the founding fathers, Jefferson and Hamilton and John Payne and all, these were all the classical yes. liberals living yes. at the right time yes. uh, when what they were saying was radical, what they were saying was new, it was saying, the saying was different. When Washington said, no, no, I don't want to be the king. I'm not going to be crowned. I'll be called something else. That was a huge change from what would have happened even 50 years before, um, when nobody would think that way. Uh, so I think it was just part of the way we we lived, you know, um, that, that all, every school child in America was born into a kind of liberal way of thinking. Um, and the Declaration of Independence made it quite explicit, you know, there, there is a sense. natural rights. Um, there, there is a sense, isn't there? I, 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 is, is, is this right? That the founding of the United States of America was the first explicit attempt to found a liberal, a liberal society, a liberal state, which many would have thought couldn't survive because monarchy was taken for granted. I believe that's correct. I believe that when you think about, especially the first hundred years of, of the country, it was all about accepting that that's a possible way of living. Right. And if you could accept that that was a possible way of living, then you you were welcome and you could come there. And now, you could... Can I raise the one big blind spot about the United States? Sure. All men created equal except chattel slavery. Can you, can you, can you, um, the, can you explain that to me? Yes. Um, well, then now we come back. Because this is due to the blind spot in, in a historical liberalism. No, it was, it's a horror and it's a disgrace and, you know, it's hard to put yourself in the brain of someone else, but it's surely a disgrace. Oh, yes. It happened and, and never should. How um, did it happen, my question? Well, I'm thinking that what you're looking at there is much more a problem with utilitarianism than with liberalism. Um, because what, what your, what the utilitarian view, the Jeremy Bentham type view, the, uh, is that, well, it may in fact maximize the utilities in the society. It is the greatest happiness, the greatest number. Yes, yes, right. But you can get that in very odd ways. And sometimes by having a downtrodden class, a, 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 mis, a, a mistreated class, you can actually maximize all everybody else's utilities and everybody else's happiness. Um, it's a peculiar kind of um, is it not, theory I mean, in a way. To live and let live, but being blind to a whole group of human beings, you're not living to let live at all. In fact, you're depending on them. Absolutely. You're, that surely must also to do with a view of the different values of human beings. Um, it would. I mean, that, I'm talking on, on the face of it, it must do. Must, it must, yes. You know, that you could actually blind yourself to the fact that these are other humans that you're mistreating. Clear, clearly. That you're not including in the, in, in the circle of those who are to live and let live. They're not in the... It, it stand, I just, I don't want to get long at this, but it stands it, it, out. It's a horror, um, and it's great that it's no longer oh, yes, uh, it's something crazy. that you'll find very often or hardly at all, but you still have that same dynamic in places like the U.S., don't you, where the wealth of the country is in a large part dependent on some downtrodden people yes. uh, whose futures are very grim, whose pay is very low, poverty is extremely high, um, that actually is part of, I reckon, a utilitarianism that runs through many countries. So, how is liberalism different from utilitarianism? Then it's, it's, it's it has a moral basis. Yes, well, an ethical yeah, basis. Um, it, it's. You know, I, I wouldn't say that that's how I would think the main difference would be. I, I think it, the main difference would be in how you would create the basis of society. Um, I, I, I see it as very much 
do you judge things by the consequences of their actions or are there actual deontological rules that are above that? Yes. And yes. I believe if you don't have the second, you will never have a just society. You can't have a just society based on utilitarianism this because unjust things will often give you very high levels of utility. Yes, you high. can, in the short term anyway. Yeah, yes. That's right. Uh, well, this, maybe even on the long term. Yes, this raises an interesting question. One of the defining features of liberalism, as I understand it, is that the, a liberal society doesn't decide the big questions. It doesn't decide if, if God exists. Mm. It doesn't determine what is the chief end of man. It even, in many levels, allows people to have different moralities within a framework. It's a... And for some, this is very unsatisfying. We want, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a kind of unsettling to see a society in which these things are let, are let um, not, de not determined by the centre. But, you, but you're, you're saying to me, it still has to have some level of what you call deontological, things that are right, things that are wrong Correct. for it to work. Well, it won't work otherwise. And what are those? Um, so one of those is non-aggression, which we've already mentioned. So in, in, a, in a just society, there is you are not forcing people to believe things that they don't want to believe, to go to churches they don't wish to go to, to um, in, 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 in every way possible to allow the individual to have the freedom and the breadth of uh, functioning that they, they need in order to pursue a good life as they see it. Um, so non-aggression is probably the basic. Not non-compulsion aggression, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. in any way. Okay. So, but the, uh, that's right, non-compulsion aggression. But also there are a set of natural rights, right? They're, they go right back to the beginning of liberalism and to the 17th century and 18th century uh, commentaries, maybe culminating in the, in, the, in the Declaration of Independence that um, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And, those natural rights, they're not given by a state. They are yours because you're a human being. They are yours because you were born into this earth. And those, you mean, also control about your own life, right? And your own... So there's a set of clear... I, I, I'm not can't use the word values because values are not given. They're, they're what we value. But clear truths, moral truths. And that's what I believe. And that's what... That liberalism must have to... to and, and that was Robert Nozick's argument in his famous book... Um, uh, it, it's it's about natural, he calls them natural yes, rights, yes. the American constitutional inalienable, sorry, Declaration of Independence, inalienable rights, but they are there because you are human. And, right. and they are mainly negative rights. They're all about what can't be done to you rather than what you can do because you're not being given them by some rich state. They are yours, right? And you are free from compulsion, free and from... The, and the state is to, is to recognise them and, and keep its place. And protect, and protect them. And protect them. That's the, only that's the only role of the state, right? The state is there to protect you so you can go and do about doing, your, doing what you wish to do. Yes, the trouble is when the state has a different set of moral rights than others. I mean, one of the troubles that I'm interested in is the issue of, of religious freedom in a liberal mm -hmm. society, which is a very complex question, by the way, because... What, what, what I do in my church or synagogue or mosque is one thing. The moment I try and run my Christian school or my Christian institution, um, I want to exercise certain freedoms to choose and maintain the integrity of the institution. The liberal state says that's discriminating against people's rights. Uh, I think this is a bit more complicated than that. Oh, yes, so I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a bit more complicated I, than that. Because you could, you could say that the role of the state in that particular example, which is schools, 
is to maintain your choice. You so, could say that. Yeah. So my my role as a state, if I were a human, if I were the you know person embodying the state, my job is to make sure that you have a choice as to where you go to school. That's really all I need to do. But what about the choice to, to me to have a school that has a certain character? Yeah. That's the whole point. Otherwise, you, why would you choose one over the other? You were, it's got to be because there's a reason why you want to go to one school rather than another. So you, what, what, would, what would look like discrimination in one situation is merely selection for the sake of the identity of the school in another. Um, why would it look like discrimination? Sorry. Because I'm not going to hire you because you're, um, you're not a Buddhist for my Buddhist school. Right. Normally, not hiring people for their religion is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, just not right. No. We don't allow sectarian solutions. Yeah, but what in if this context, believe in the, yeah, I get it. What's the point of having a school as Buddhist if you won't, if you don't believe in Buddhism, but I have to hire you anyway? My point is there's a danger here of an overly activist liberal state flattening out the very distinctions in theory they're meant to preserve, um, making us all alike in theory. We talked about it a moment ago that liberalism is more of a state of mind than a specific ideology. So uh, is there a necessary connection between no. flattening out and liberalism? No, 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 there isn't. No, I don't I'm think not, so either. It's, it's contingent totally. It's, it's yeah. liberty. Um, you've mentioned a number of times the, the founders or first thinkers of liberalism in the 18th century. You've mentioned the founding fathers of the United States. Does this mean that liberalism is an historical phenomenon a contingent phenomenon, not a natural state of human beings, but not all naturally liberals. It's a particular form of thinking about the world, which has come into being in the uh, in the West, in the in, in the Christian culture, cultural Christian West, in the eighteenth and nineteenth century. I think you're probably right. I don't think that I'm not really capable of telling you what's natural. I mean, only God knows what's natural. But um, I think it's widely held now so widely held that people don't even see it as an ideology. Well, it isn't an ideology, but they don't even see it as something that needs to be discussed. I think it's the, <laughs> the implementation of these things. Yes. I mean, if you go to, really, where would you, you'd have to find someone who didn't believe that people should be treated equally or didn't believe that everyone should have a chance at life. Or, and you, yes, they seem so obvious. Many, don't, they seem so obvious, don't they? That's right. They seem to be and accepted yet, wisdom. In really. human history, they once were not obvious. No, and That's there's places where they're not obvious now. No, no. But they, it, it would be hard to find people who would argue with you about things like that. Um, but so what you do with it is the question you're saying. Well, I think it's also the, redis the, the when it gets down to very specific questions about shall I uh, hire a non-Buddhist to work in my Buddhist school or, or um, how shall I do, how, how can I do affirmative action to allow someone who has not had life's you know, advantages to get into a good university? When you get to very specific things like that, that's where the arguments occur yes. because they are very, un, you know. Well, let's go to that. They're you, not black and white. They're grey, right? Not only have you, not, I mean, you're gotten for punishment. You've been a vice chancellor, not once, not twice, but three times. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the university in particular, where these principles apply. How, how easy was it well, to, have, to maintain a, a liberal about, society? One that I know a lot about is, in fact, the whole area of admissions and treating people differently in this system. Um, because in 2004, I worked for um, the British government uh, and I did a review of all English universities. And we came up with a lot of anxieties about it. In fact, the current prime minister um, of uh, Great Britain actually sponsored an early day motion in parliament condemning me 
um, for some of the things that I was doing in university. So I um, got to know Mr. Johnson. Um, on, on what grounds did Boris Johnson condemn you, Stephen oh, Maybe condemning me is not the right word, but he didn't. He wasn't happy. Um, we were looking at admissions to particularly the ancient universities like yeah. Oxford and Cambridge um, and whether they could be made fairer to people who were from low uh, participation backgrounds who wouldn't yeah. in the past. Yeah. And he didn't agree with what I was doing. And uh, we're both, I'm a fellow at Balliol College. He was a student at Balliol College. And, no, anyway, it, it was a good outcome because I called him up and said I wasn't happy with what he had said, and he took me out to lunch, and it was a really nice uh, experience to to meet him, and uh, found that we agreed on more than we didn't agree on. Um, but th that area is important in the discussion that we've been having because all of these things come to a head when you are looking at admissions and you're saying, "I'm going to treat that person differently from that person because that person, the first one, belongs to a, a specific group." And all of the issues that... That's, not, that's complex, isn't it? All the issues that revolve around liberalism and come out. Um, is there any argument for helping people because their backgrounds were poor? Um, if there is, what, how much help can you give them? Um, and so most people would say, well, it would be okay to advertise more widely. So maybe there are people who have got, gone to schools where no one's ever gone to Oxford and Cambridge. So you say, well, here's how you get in. And this is what you need to do. That Nobody would object to that. So that would be like a little help. Yes. Or you might say they've never been there. They don't know anyone who's been there. They think it's just for rich people or toffs or someone. So you run a summer school and you allow people to spend a couple of weeks or a week at the university. Yes. They're not going to get in because of that. They still need to meet the same requirements as everybody else. But at least they demystify it a bit. They got experience. Well, this might not be a bad place. Look, quite neat, really. Or you could go even further and you can say, well, I'm not only going to advertise and I'm not only going to let them in, but I'm also going to provide um, maybe some tutoring so that they can be brought up to the right level. And it can go on and on until yes. you get to the extreme. I would say the nuclear end of this, which is you have a quota and you say, we will take a certain number of people in that group and the, the class will be made of 10% women or uh, minorities or w whatever the code is. And then you're reaching a point where you are the ed really clear, extremely illiberal approach to the problem because you are actually treating people as members of a group rather than as individuals. And you're saying that group is more important than that. You, that's you change the rules, you change rules where, where, where it matters. Um, it matters. That is in admissions. It doesn't matter who gets to have a, have a summer school. No. Who gets to have extra tutoring. No. But if it comes to Qualification to enter, you think that's that's crossing a line when that no longer becomes. But even there, Rob, it gets grey. <laughs> Everything is. I went to visit uh, one of the colleges at Cambridge University, and Jesus College, which is what one of the ones that was helping coordinate admissions for the whole whole university. And they were showing me what they were doing, and they were really doing a lot of advertising in uh, deprived backgrounds. They were doing all the things that we were talking about up to point. Well, one of their um, admissions criteria that help people get in is whether they were ducks of a school. And I said, well, do you know only private schools have ducks? In, you know? So having that is a really discriminatory. That's discriminatory the other way. They hadn't thought of it. No, no they you know, didn't do it on purpose. They just hadn't no. thought of it. Um, so it's all gray. There's black and white shades into gray when you try to 
implement things in the real world. Uh, and then at some point, you're going to have to make a line, right? Yes. And I would say that almost everyone I spoke to when we were doing that job, from the prime minister down, doesn't want a quota. It just is unfair. It is unfair on the surface, and it's unfair in practice to do that. But there are a lot of other things you could do, which some people wouldn't approve of, but I, which... Yes. The, the, in other words, I, the theme of what you're saying is that liberalism as a as a frame of mind, it's you can get f- rather relative unit, confident unanimity on that. But the moment you've got to actually make judgments about how to apply it in particular situations, people have different outcomes. Right, unless they want to be very doctrinaire. Um, and that's, and not, that's not the nature of liberalism. Well, no, it becomes libertarianism then. Um, because you're going to the to the extreme, right? You're going. What, what, how, how do you see the distinction between liberalism and libertarianism? Uh, Ayn Rand said that. Um, how, did, how did she say? Libertarians are the hippies of the left. Right? <laughs> I think she got it right. Yeah, I think she's about right. That is for them. Liberty of the individual is an overriding a principle. Correct. And the devil take the hindmost. Correct. Well. Yeah. No matter what unfairness. Developed. I much preferred Nozick, Robert Nozick, and even John Rawls, although they were from different ends of the same thing, um, that, that really, the way I see it, it starts with a set of natural rights, these deontological rules that we, we said. Um, it starts there. And then from there, we have to obviously live together. Um, and how we distribute the awards of a society, like admission to a, a good university or new jobs, all of that needs to be worked out pretty yes. much as you go. Yes. Um, yes. There's not any real secret to, you know, uh, um, any any lock that you can then just open with a key and there's there your is. answer. It's always going to be something that's it's a work in progress, isn't it? Because, um, well, you know, it was, uh, I'm pretty sorry, that the biggest issue is redistribution. So if, if there are people who are down in the bottom of a society, they're struggling, they don't have the resources of everyone else, is there a way to help them which is not illiberal, which doesn't yes, sort of violate either. other people's? And that's the hardest issue in the whole of uh, political philosophy to answer. Yes. Um, you know, Nozick believed Rawls was illiberal. Um, because he wanted them. Some redistribution, yes. Yes, that's right. Redistribution that always favoured the people at the bottom. Yes. Um, whereas Nozick was saying, well, it's not, not always unfair that someone's on top. Have Sometimes you- it's entirely fair that they're up there. You know, I, you yes. know I, I always use the example of Elvis, you know. Elvis gives a concert in a small town. He walks out with everybody's money, you know, but they're happy. They enjoyed the concert. He has the, you know, where's the unfairness yes, here? I don't think anyone thinks that's unfair. <laughs> uh, I don't know, because Thomas Piketty says it's unfair that there are people rich and there are other it people depends, who are poor. In my view, it depends why. Yes. It depends why they're rich and whether that richness is gained by a system that is uh, benefiting them against others, I guess. Well, but right, politicians that, that, in this country and in other countries have said that um, inequality is the biggest issue facing the world. Yeah. I think that was Barack Obama and... Um, you know, we had similar things here that just because people are different doesn't mean they're unfair. Um, but, but sometimes it does. Yes, because liberalism does believe in the dignity and equality of individuals yes. before the law. Yes. Yes, and, and in, in, in the society. Can I ask you a final question? Um, and maybe you can't answer this because your very philosophy is liberalism on the whole is believed, but it's hard to, pl- hard to live in practice. 
Are, are you optimistic about the future of liberalism? Uh, I think we need a new look at liberalism. I do. Oh. I do think um, the world as it as exists now is kind of turned upside down from the world that I'm used to. Um, the, po- the policies that are being put forward by formerly the conservative side of politics, both the Republican Party of the US, the Liberal Party here, the Conservative Party in the UK, um, are often the policies that used to be associated with the other side, um, with Democrats and, and Labour, and vice versa. We're getting a much more complicated set of politics now. Le- we still talk about left and right in Australia all the time. You hear it on podcasts, you hear it on the news, yeah. especially if you listen to some of the cable networks, it's all lefty right. There is no left and right anymore that makes any sense. I mean, people who are on the right now believe things that used to be purely lefty and that and vice versa. I think there's now just an up and down. There are people who think we should have autonomous individuals and we should try to organize our society to the extent that's possible to give people the flexibility to live their lives and flourish as they wish. Or there are people who want to control you and they want to control every aspect of it, what you're allowed to say and where you're allowed to go and what you're allowed to do and the attitude you're allowed to have. It's more of an up and down than a left and right. And Reagan said that years ago, but I think now it's really true. And you're an up, not a down. I'm one being up, yes. Um, But what we'll have to do... Who will win? um, I think... I also believe in some of the traditional religious views. I believe in solidarity. I do think that it's more than just individuals. Mrs. Thatcher got into terrible trouble when she was from this by saying there's no such thing as society. Um, but what she meant is not wrong, is it? Yeah, there is no. I mean, there are individuals leading their lives. It, you're an individual. I'm. An, we are all leading our lives individually. There is no other thing out there. But we do still owe things to the other members. To of, communities, to nations, yeah, to the question is who families. Does, who owes them? Do you owe them or does the government owe them? And I think that's the big issue that we need to work out because the rate we're going now, it's all about the government owes them. So the government will do things. Government will act after your education, after your health, after your moral wealth. Now, you know, everything that's wrong with you or wrong in the world will be a government solution. The history shows that's not going to work. It isn't. It never has and never will. So how do we get back to the civil society that we're always used to Hopeful. How do we get back to Edmund Burke's little platoons out there doing things? And how do we get back to friendly societies, which ran through Australia at one point, um, where people would contribute and then give the, the help to people when they need it? Where, how do we get back to doing that? When it, it's uh, so, that's one of one of the issues. The other thing I think needs to be looked at very carefully, and I don't know the answer to this. I know what the wrong answer to it is, and that is esteem. There are a huge number of people now who don't feel that they have any self-esteem or they don't esteemed by society. And you see this in a lot of the Trump rallies and um, in America, but also here as well, where they feel they're neglected, they feel they're not valued, they feel they're not important, they, um, they feel left out. Um, and you get that Hillary Clinton, you know, these are, I can't remember the exact word. deplorables. There you go, basket of deplorables, that sort of thing. There are people in this category who are getting more and more alienated and turning more and more to populist solutions, um, strongman solutions, Trump, Viktor Orban and Hungary and all the others. And how we deal with all of that will make a huge difference to what happens. How the promise of liberalism of equal dignity and how that is applied to them. But we don't at the moment, do we? We have it in our heads that that should, but we don't, Robin, it needs to do. 
Stephen Swartz, thank you very, very much. Fascinating. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.